Would you turn to Colossians chapter 3? We're still going through this awesome book verse by verse. Colossians 3. And uh, we'll be focusing on verse 8 this morning. I couldn't go further enough into other verses and I just got stuck there while I was preparing. That's all that we have for today. But uh, for the sake of being contextually right, let's read from verse 6 to verse 8. Colossians 3, verses 6, all the way down to 8. <clears throat> For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. <clears throat> if you recall at the start of this chapter, Paul calls us to seek heaven, to seek heaven. And why should we seek heaven? What were the three reasons that we looked at? Well, number one, because we died. We died with Christ. And not only did we die, but the second reason is that your life currently hidden. In Christ. And even beyond this, Christ is our life right now as we speak. What does it mean that Christ is our life? It means He has become our all sufficient and supreme Savior. What does this mean? It means that Jesus has become our treasure. He has become our precious possession. He has become our supreme pleasure. We can identify with that if we're born again. And the third reason why we ought to seek heaven is because what we do here on earth will have an eternal, long-lasting impact in a new earth. And therefore, with every fabric of your human being, let every minute count in this life for eternity. Seek heaven. Seek heaven. How do we do this? How do we seek heaven? Where do we begin? Last time we saw that Paul, he used a metaphor in verse 5. To tell us how we seek heaven. He says, put to death. That is to say, declare war. 
against what? Not against the culture, not against this perverse generation primarily. No, but the war ought to begin here, in us, in you and in me. Against our sexual sin, our earthly passions, against your evil desires and greed. So in this metaphor, you are to wield your sword. You are to sharpen your dagger to be your own executioner, if you like, and to cut off the heads of your evil thoughts and your self-idolatry. No compromise. Why such a drastic measure? In verse 6, because that is how much your heavenly Father abhors those sins. In fact, it is His righteous, holy anger that will be poured out upon the sons of disobedience, the unbelievers, precisely because of those sins. Now, Paul has not finished yet the list of sins that we are to forsake. Now, who moves beyond this list that we looked at last week, and he gives us another list in verse 8. The first list is about our sensual list sins. This new list is relational sins. If you like, the first list would destroy you as a person if you keep them, if you cherish them. The second list, not only will it destroy you, but it will destroy people around you, especially those who are, who are most loved. The first sin, list of sins that we looked at, it, be, it begins with an outward action, sexual immorality, and it moves deep down, layer by layer, until you come to the bottom, the mother of all motives. That is your idolatry. The second list, however, it begins the other way around. It begins with the inward motive, and it progresses to the outward action, precisely your speech. Now let's... Let's have a look. Let's break it down. And we'll start from verse 7, <clears throat> just to give us some context. Now in verse 7 it says, And in them you also once walked. We looked at this last week. What did that mean? It means this, that you were, um, before you were born again, you walked in them, you, meaning you practiced the, those sins. They were habitual. You walked in them, meaning they were your path in life. It, it was your lifestyle to practice those sins. Not only that, Paul says, <clears throat> when you were living in them, living in them, those sins were the, the air that you breathed. Living in them, meaning you were drowning in them. They were choking you, if you like. Lust was your middle name. It ruled you. Sin reigned in your life, in your heart, as your master. And though that we were one breath away from, from eternal punishment, because of God's wrath was upon us. Yet, 
Let us be honest, brothers and sisters. Once upon a time, we took pride and we boasted in the fact that we loved our sin. That was our past. And now we move to verse 8. And the first two words, but now. Wow. Thank God for but now. That was your life before. And standing in the polar opposite of our miserable past is our glorious present. There is now a a, a shift of of identity, a change in, in our master. Because we no longer live in sin, but now we live in Christ. Therefore, now, there is now a duty, an obligation in our part. What is this obligation? We continue on and he says, You also put them all all aside. Put them all aside. Put what aside? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Put aside. Put aside is an imperative command. It's a direct order. Put aside. And the way it's rendered is, okay, uh, I don't want to scare you again, but I have to say this to you. It's in arrest. Arrest meaning it's a, it's a once for all decision. He is calling you for a dedication, for commitment, to get rid of them all, to throw them all away. Now, what does it mean to put aside the word? These words, put aside, is yet another metaphor. Paul loves to use metaphors. And here he's employing another one. It implies an intentional effort in our part to, to do what? To strip away our sinful characters as though someone is changing his clothes. To appreciate the meaning of this, we need to understand a a little bit of the historical context at the time of Paul. And mind you, it's also present till today. Perhaps, Perhaps we're a bit loose in it in our Western culture today, but they were far more stricter back then, which is what? Changing clothes was not just a change of uh, physical appearance or changing uh, that piece of cloth that you wear, but it's a change of identity, change of roles. You're about to change your behavior when you take off your old clothes and you put new ones. Think of the athletes, what they wear at home or they go for a walk versus what they wear when they, when they go to compete. They wear clothes and it speaks of their readiness, their dedication to the, to the game. 
Think of a farmer when he wears this worn, dirty clothes as he plows the field, but then he comes home and what does he do? He takes off these worn clothes and he puts on new ones as to say, I'm no longer functioning as a farmer. Now I'm at home. I function as a father, as a, as a husband. So also we must put off our trade. We must consciously and deliberately take off our old ways of life. Why? Because they're not consistent with our new identity, our roles as Christians. Bear with me for a moment. Imagine this. Imagine a royal king who chooses to marry a poor, um, very poor uh, woman who had an ex-husband who was brutal to her, who beaten her and bruised her, ruined her clothes. And so in the kindness and the graciousness of this royal king, he gives her enough money to go and buy for herself new clothes in preparation for the wedding. What do you think, brothers and sisters, if she rocks up to her wedding with her old clothes? Perhaps a better illustration is this. Imagine we have a plumber. We have more than one plumber in this room. Imagine we have a plumber who's been working in the sewerage all day long. And then he comes home and he wants to sleep on his bed next to his wife with his uniform. Right? Closer to home, right? And Paul says... Listen, when you were saved, God enlisted you to be an athlete for Jesus Christ. But you're wearing anger as your sleeves. This jacket of wrath is, is so heavy. Slander is weighing you down. Listen, how are you going to run the race well if you continue wearing these clothes? Sin was your ex-husband. And it brutally beaten you. It torn your clothes. It stained you. Look at you now. You're wearing dirty rags. Once upon a time... When, when you were children of disobedience, like he says in verse 6, those sins were your filthy uniform when, when you went down in the sewerage of your wickedness. But now, they're no longer befitted the children of God. There is yet a new uniform for our royal priesthood to function right. So what do you do? He says, take them off. What does it mean to take them off? To put them all together in a pile. You pour petrol on them and lit them up. Get rid of them. All right. Now that we know what we have to do, what are those sins that we've got to get rid of? Or fasten your seatbelt. You're ready for the ride? Right? Can you handle the truth? 
I trust you can handle the truth. By God's grace, you will handle the truth. Because the first sin in the list is anger. Can you handle this one? All right. What's anger? It's our hot displeasure. It's the feeling that leads us to sin. Anger. Now, when I said this word, most of you smiled. But all of you stood straight and your ears turned into an antenna and you're about to listen. Why is that? Yeah, that's right. It's sin, which, mind you, spoils even the best of relationships, is like a pandemic, right? Not only is it in our culture and in every culture, but it's even in our homes, in our churches. No one is exempted from this sin. Our flesh is stained with this sin. And sadly, like I said earlier, who are the victims? Predominantly the ones that we love the most. It's our brothers and sisters among us, right? Spouses at home, children. Now, I believe the worst thing about this sin, sin of anger, is normally... The angry person builds a fortress of self-righteousness in order to protect this sin. He is blinded to its magnitude and its depth. He doesn't want it to be exposed. Now, why do I believe this is the worst thing to do with this sin? Let me tell you why. Because in the light of denying it, you will never repent of it, right? Until when? Until it causes real and serious damage to even those that we love the most. Well, in that case... I I really would like to share with you from my own um, personal ministry in doing counseling. What were two of the, the ways that we protect our sins? There are more than two, but I will just focus on two because of time. First, we have this fake holy anger. Fake righteous anger. What do I mean by that? Have you ever wondered why it is that you can keep your cool with your boss at work, but at home, you just let the lid off. You let your emotion run high. Why is it that the more we take people for granted, the more they become the object of our anger. And someone would say, I get angry at home mostly because of righteous anger. 
It's a righteous anger. Really? Are you saying that your boss at work and your colleagues are so godly that they never provoke you to anger, but your spouse and your children are like running demons? Really? Or could it be that you know if you yell at your boss at work, your job is at the line, even for once? You're out of there. So you keep it cool. But your home, your family, well, where are they going to go? They're staying. So you let them have it. Let me tell you what righteous anger is. It's how you feel when God's law is violated, not yours. God's law. It is about him, not you. I can pull out a couple of verses in the Bible and that really stirs me up when my wife doesn't, when when that brother of mine doesn't obey them. Right. Another thing that we need to know about righteous anger, if it is from the Lord because it's righteous, it never robs me from the joy in the Lord. Does your righteous anger rob you from your joy in the Lord? It will never lead you to sin. You know what it will lead you to do? To pray for this man. Because a righteous anger is determined not to destroy this sister or that man. It is determined to build him up. To restore him back. Righteous anger. Do you pray for the people that you're righteously angry at? Do you still maintain your joy in the Lord? I submit to you, brothers and sisters, let us be honest, 99% of what we call, quote-unquote, righteous anger is actually unrighteous anger masquerading itself into a righteous one. It's not. Let me give you another another way of us protecting our sin of anger. Blame shifting. One would say, you don't understand um, what I'm going through. Nobody understands. What do you mean? I have a long day at work. I come home. I'm so tired, I'm so exhausted, and guess what I find? A messy house. Kids running around. And the eyes on the cake is a contentious wife. No man could handle this. Right? Or a wife would say, oh, if you were on my, in my shoes, if you know what I know, If you just hear the stupid questions that my husband asks me. He's just so selfish. I can't help but getting angry at him. Really? Let me ask you. If it was Jesus that was in your shoes, would he have gotten angry? No, he wouldn't. Well, why not? Ah, oh, Jesus is perfect. 
I'm, I'm, not, I'm not perfect. Right. Are we talking? We're getting somewhere. Because what is this imperfection in you that leads you to get angry, whereas Jesus, who is perfect, does not? What is it? Let me tell you why we get angry. James actually helps us. It's a cheat. It's a cheat verse. Because James gives us the answer. Chapter 4, verse 1, James says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war where? In your house? At, in the church? In your members. Not the members of the body of the church. In your own flesh. Brothers, listen to me. When we buy into this lie that something else other than Jesus is more pleasurable, something else that promises me better satisfaction than Jesus Christ himself, this thing will rule you. It will dominate your thinking. It will consume your mind. And then what happens is that you will see people around you as a vehicle to get what you really want. So, a husband who's, let's say, ruled by his own comfort, when he comes home and sees a contentious wife, he no longer views her as an object of his love. But a barrier, a, 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 an obstruction to his comfort. So what does he do? He gets angry at her. Why? Because she stood in the way between him and what he really loves the most, which is his comfort. Likewise, a wife... Let's say that is ruled by strong desire. Let's say strong desire. She, she would say, I really, really want him to understand me. I I, all I want is for him to love me. And the poor guy comes home. And guess what she has in her mind? Come to me. I am the Lord your God. And I have a wonderful plan for your life. If you understand me, I will bless you. But if you ask stupid questions, there is hell to pay. Right? Sounds funny, but I know why you're laughing. Right? You see, brethren, when, when, when you pursue a pleasure that is ultimately not Jesus Christ, you will see even the closest people to you either as a vehicle to get what you want or as your enemies if they deprive you from feeding your own cravings. And so, you get angry at them. Why? Because anger is an expression that says, hey, this man must be eliminated because he's a threat to me, to my cravings. Then whose fault is it when I get angry? 
It's me. Now, before we even move to the next sin, I just want to throw in something freebie. All right, one, one extra thing about anger before we move on. Do you know what the problem is even when we try to resolve anger conflicts? One of the biggest problems, and watch out for these brothers, that we, for some reason, tend to seek forgiveness for getting angry, but how often do we seek forgiveness for the reason why we get angry in the first place? Honey, sorry I yelled at you or got angry. Fine, that's great. But how often do we say to God, God, please forgive me. Because when I got angry, at this moment, I rejected Christ to be my all-sufficient Savior. He is no longer all I need. When I got angry, God, I chose to chase after other false gods. God, it was my lust for control. My pride that led me to be angry. So long as we don't repent of those desires, those strong desires that take place, and instead of Jesus Christ in our lives, guess what happens? They become even more stronger desires, and anger will fester. It will grow, and guess what it will become? Next sin, wrath. What is wrath? Unrepentant anger leads to wrath. What is wrath? It's this intense anger, strong desire for vengeance. What happens? How does anger lead to wrath? Well, it's normally what happens. You're you're angry at someone because he's an obstruction. He's not helping you to feed your inner idols. So rather than confessing it as your sin and you put it off as the Bible says, what you do instead is you begin to internalize the situation. Take pride, for example. Pride. You're not getting a recognition that you're really, really craving for. What do you do? You get angry. You think in yourself, all right, who does this guy think who he is? All right. Doesn't, doesn't he know who I am? Who are you? Well, son. Oh, yeah, sure. But besides the point, all right. Well, th- doesn't he know? And you begin to tap into your worldly possessions. And you say, oh, look how rich I am. Or look how intelligent I am. Or my position. Or my status. And you try to convince yourself that you are entitled for greater recognition. Because you, as a beggar, God graced you with something. That you would never be able to attain on your own. And you would say, I'm a big guy. If this man, this woman, had a brain... Even as big as a little ant, he would have respected me as much as I respect me. 
And you begin to take this journey of dwelling in your own greatness and your brother's fallenness. And that will fuel your anger more and more. And you begin to develop resentment and from resentment to bitterness. And you begin to, in your mind, issue fines that you feel that this person now has to pay to you for trampling over your pride until something even insignificant happens. Well, it is insignificant, but in your mind, it's not insignificant. It's the pebble that broke the camel's back. It's huge in your mind because you don't, you're not looking at this pebble. What are you looking at? You're looking at the entire debt of all the fines that you're not willing to let go of. And this will lead you to be fuming. And you won't be able to restrain your strong, angry emotion any longer. And at which point you will explode. You'll blow the fuse and you'll let them have it. This is what wrath is. And if you do not put it aside, if you don't put aside anger, and the reason why you got angry in the first place, all your mental attention will be focused on the debt that your brother has not paid, and you will feel rightly justified even after crushing him with your rage. And you will say in your mind, he still owes me more. What a vicious cycle. What a vicious cycle. And God says, you're not a son of disobedience anymore. You're my child. You've got to put that off. Throw it away. Wrath is a stain. And it shouldn't dirty our garment of our flesh. All right, moving on from wrath. <clears throat> And now we have malice. And it just progresses from bad to worse. Because malice here is a more sinister trait than wrath. Again, left anger unchecked. You will have malice. It is inevitable. What is malice? It is when one begins to premeditate in his mind how to inflict harm to someone else. Well, at least with wrath, it's, it's in your face. And, and it's a spare of a moment without any rational thinking behind it. But with malice, now you're moving to the face of what? Your evil plotting. Your evil plotting. It's like a, a slimy snake that is hatching wicked scheme. Evil mastermind. Impure thoughts. And he begin to think, how do I get this guy down? Because your mind is burning, the feeling is getting hotter. Uh, he's standing in my way. How do I hurt him? And the poor guy has no idea that now he's got a target on his back. In the meanwhile, you put on this witch hat and you start processing and conspiring. 
And you say in your mind, how dare he would disagree with me in public? Unacceptable. He makes my blood boil. I, I, I want to shame him. But how do I do that? Well, I don't want to kill him because I'm a good guy. And I'm such a forgiving guy. I just, just maybe embarrass him. Um, make him taste a little of his own medicine. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll give him this silent treatment. Evil. I'll, I'll play cool and I'm going to ignore him. And then you start plotting somehow or planning and conspiring to do what? To hurt the very brother that Jesus shed his blood for. Malice. Malice. And you let malice in the oven of your mind long enough. And guess what it turns to? It won't just stay there. It has to give birth to something, right? It gives birth to slander. It just gets from bad to worse. Because in slander, you're no longer being passive and it's in your mind. Now you're being active. What is slander? <clears throat> I call it committing a reputational murder. You're murdering your brother's reputation. So what do you do? You stab your brother's dignity in the heart. You drag your brother's name through the mud. How? Slander. By spreading evil reports about your brother. And by the way, slander doesn't really care whether the, the, the report that you're spreading is true or false. Because you don't really care about that anymore. That is not your motive. You've been angry. You're harboring anger and bitterness and resentment. So all that you would be caring about is how to destroy your brother. What do you do in the meanwhile? You turn your, your ears into a microphone. And you, your eyes are like a, a radar. And, and you're monitoring. And, and, and you're waiting to, to, to hear something or to see something that is bad about your brother so that you could broadcast it to others. But wait, wait a second, wait a second. We know better than that because <clears throat> you're not going to tell, broadcast evil report about your, your brother just flat out like this. You, you, you don't want your name also to be dragged through the mud as a slanderer and people will be scared to hang out with you. So because you know better and you don't want that, what do you do? You try to play the game well. This is why there is malice before slander. <clears throat> hey, Brother Jean, you would say. How you going? Yeah, good. How's, how's Mark going? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's okay. Yeah, it's all right. Good, good. What, what, have you seen him lately? Why? Why? What, what's, what's wrong? 
well, I'm just a little concerned for him. You see how it's building up. Oh, really? Why? What, what, what's wrong? Well, so far, so good. There's nothing wrong about that. But then what happens? The conversation would turn ugly and in a very subtle way. And then you begin to spit out stuff and you would say, oh, I, just, I, just, I just heard that he was yelling the other day at someone else and I just want to make sure everything is okay. You know, because I didn't think that they're out of the wood yet. And we tend to finish the conversation with, just actually we'll just keep it confidential or just, just pray for him. Just pray for him, brother. Women's in a prayer meeting. Right? Everyone's sitting in the fear of the Lord and they're about to pray. And then one would say, Hey, sisters, I think we need to pray for, I don't know, Eve. Let's call her Eve. I think we should pray for Eve. Why? What's happening? Well, I don't know how to say this, but... And, and we play this holy uh, uh, women kind of, you know, fearing the Lord. But what are you doing? You're actually piggybacking on other women's curiosities. And then they would ask you, why? What's wrong with Eve? And then you start vomiting out things about your sister that you have no right to speak about. And yet, all at the same time, your sister is not even around to defend her reputation. And in a matter of seconds, this holy club has turned into a murder scene. A bloodbath. Ruined reputation. That is what unresolved anger leads to. Slandering. That's when your mouth is stained with your blood of your brother's reputation. And then Paul finishes the list. And he says... Abusive speech from your mouth. Abusive speech, of course. This is where it leads to. Abusive speech. What is abusive speech? Everything that has in it some, something to destroy your brother. You're whinging about him. You're being sarcastic. You mock him. You panter him. Being cynical. You say something that is mean or derogative and you finish the sentence with, huh, you, you know, I'm just kidding, brother. Or I'm just saying this because I love you, brother. But in your, in your mind, you just want to destroy him and you want to give it a good label so that you tick the box and you make yourself look holy. And Paul says, all those carnal ways of life must what? Be put away. Take him off. Don't wear this. These clothes are ugly. These clothes are full of manure. You, they, they've been in a sewage. Take them off. 
And Paul says, there's no room for such sins. There's no place to compromise in this passage, brothers and sisters. These sins, whether anger, wrath, malice, slander, evil speech, they have absolutely no part to do with our redeemed lives. Put them what? All. Every last one of them. How much wrath do you think God wants you to have? How much slander? 20%? And God will say that's fine? 5%? How much, how much human manure would you want to have in your pajamas and you go to bed with? Think about this. Brothers, this is a call to radical holiness. A complete and utter separation from the ways of this world. No negotiation. No bargaining. All out to holiness. It is a divine command and order from the Most High to everyone who names himself a follower of Christ. You say, oh, but, I'm, but I'm so guilty and, I, I'm, I'm, and, and I'm so weak and I, I just don't know what to do with this. Brothers, Jesus died on the cross not only to wash your blood away, sorry, not only to wash your sins away by his blood, but out of this same blood, there is strength available for you if you commit this way. If you commit. Anyone that will come to Christ, there is power in that blood. Trust this truth. You begin with that. You begin by knowing that the strength that you are to combat those sins with is not found in you. It is found all in the blood of Jesus Christ. Him working in you, empowering you to overcome those sins. How do I access this power? Give your allegiance to Jesus. Not for my sake, God, that I want to get rid of this anger and wrath and malice. Not for my sake, but for Jesus' sake, I want to do that. The Holy Spirit will only empower you insofar as you want Jesus Christ. So, if you come to God and say to God, God, this anger in me, this wrath, this Evil, wicked attitude of malice and slander fogging my eyes from beholding my Savior. Would you get rid of them for me? You know what God will say? There are things that are deeper than that you've got to get rid of as well. Because the reason why you got angry is because of your craving for control. 
is because of your pride, is because of your selfishness, then you come and say, God, not only this anger, but the reason why I get angry is, fl- is fogging my mind. It's like a veil before my eyes, and I can no longer behold Christ and His glory as much as I should because of my desire for control. It's about Christ. May we pursue our Savior with all of His glorious beauty. How? That we would pursue gentleness, letting go of anger. That we would be compassionate people, not wrathful, kind, not slanderous. That we would speak words to build up, not to tear down. May we pursue Him. And in pursuing Him, we know that His beauty will never be revealed any more than when we are like Him. So we want to be like Him in order to enjoy Him more. Amen? Unbelievers, this is not for you to stop being angry because you cannot, though you are obliged to by the same God, but you have absolutely no access to that power unless your knees are bent before the Savior Jesus Christ. I pray for those unbelievers today that they would be so convicted by The fact that they are angry people, that they are wrathful people so much that they are feeling crushed under the weight of their own sin. Not because I don't like you, but because I want you to know the only way out is Jesus Christ. Go to Him with those sins. Don't go to Him with your made-up kind of gentleness and compassion. What are you going to do with that? He doesn't want that. He wants your sins to take them off of you. Go to Him with all these malice thoughts, these evil, impure thoughts. He loves to save sinners. And the more you know of how much of a sinner you are, the more, oh, He loves to take you and embrace you and wipe those sins away, wash them by His blood and grant you eternal life. Oh, if you just come to Christ today. So, rather than being a son of disobedience, you'll be a child of God. Let's pray. Lord God, We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who enlightens our minds and helps us to understand your word. Oh, but more than that, Lord, we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that is imparted to every believer in order to transform him to become more like Christ. Oh, but there is more that we thank you for. We thank you for Jesus himself who killed death by his death and ushered in new life for us to live in this way and granted us this same power to overcome sin, 
so that we could enjoy him more. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Amen.